Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is an author and a speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. He previously wrote The Pattern and Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, which I read about three years ago. Very interesting. I can highly recommend it. Today, we're going to talk about his newest book, The Web of Meeting, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, which came out sometime this summer, summer of 2021. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I think I read it in September, maybe something like that. And I reached out to you and said, yeah, let's chat. And you said, sure, let's do it. So yeah, I think people will find this to be quite interesting. So I'm going to start off with a story you tell in the introduction about the story of, actually, it's Uncle Bob's story, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So what does Uncle Bob have to say about the world? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Uncle Bob, Jim, is somebody I think we all kind of know in one way or another. And in fact, in some ways, it's somebody who exists in all of our minds, even if we don't necessarily associate with him. And well, the way I write the story is just based on my own experience because I, I grew up in England. And so my particular uncle Bob is there in a like um, a suburban London tea party kind of thing where the family all get together. But uncle Bob could be anywhere around the world. But in my particular story, you know, people are just hanging around together and they're, and they're saying, you know, we need to do this and that to change the world, to make it a better place. And, and that they're talking about some of the exciting things that could be done. And uncle Bob comes along and he says, let me tell you what. When you've been around the block a few times like I have, you get to know all these ideas about trying to make the world a better place. You're missing what human nature is about because fundamentally, I'll tell you, we're all selfish. In fact, even our genes are selfish. That's the, how nature evolved, and that's just how it is. And, and because of that, you know, the system that works the best is capitalism because it just harnesses that selfishness, and it's like this invisible hand, right? It makes everything the best possible way it can be. And, you know, sure, we have problems, but capitalism, along with the market solutions, they're going to solve them all, so don't worry about it. And the sort of conversation sort of dissipates. Everyone goes, oh, how's little Jilly doing with her dancing lessons? And that's over. And basically, what this book, in a way, is doing is it looks at each of the assumptions that Uncle Bob makes about the world, because he's basically like the mouthpiece for what I call a dominant worldview. And it shows that every one of those statements that Uncle Bob makes about human nature, about nature itself, about how, um, how humans work with each other, are all wrong. They're not just dangerous and leading us to potential destruction of our civilization, but we think, most of us think they're scientifically, factually based, and we just have to live according to them. But modern science shows us that actually they are all misguided based on old preconceptions. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because you mentioned it. Worldviews. You use the term 87 times in the book. 
<laughs> is that right? <laughs> well, I have a little tool that lets me do these little quick and dirty searches. Yeah. And I find it interesting to find out what are some of the dominant words. Worldviews is one of yours. It's obviously a key concept. What do you mean by worldview and why do you consider it such a central concept? Yes, and I do see that as a, a fundamentally central concept because basically a worldview, we can think of really as the lens through which we see the world, which is kind of what the word itself means. And the important thing about a lens is that oftentimes we're not even aware that we're seeing through a lens. I mean, our eyes itself are a lens and the world out there, we just assume is the way it is. But of course, scientists explain that actually our lens is creating an image of the world based on um, how that works. And the thing about that is when you're not aware that you're actually seeing the world in a particular way, that has a very powerful impact on you because you believe reality is a certain way. And when in fact, there could be other ways of perceiving reality. So what a worldview does is it gives a sense of norms to people, a sense of this is how the world works, this is how we're meant to live, this is what happens when you do th this and that. And we actually basically build our lives around that. So a lot of the work I did, is that, that earlier book you mentioned, The Patterning Instinct, looked at different worldviews all the way from, um, through history, from when humans first evolved to our current day. And it shows that those worldviews themselves actually shape the direction of history because they form the, the value system that a culture just takes for granted, which affects how actually history has unfolded. And by the same token, the worldview that we have today the values we have today are what will shape the future. Yeah. And, you know, for instance, in the Middle Ages in Europe, Dark Ages in particular, say 1000 AD, the worldview was all about getting to heaven, right? And so that's what everybody optimized for, except the people that exploited people trying to get to heaven for their own purposes, which, right. uh, of course, is what always happens, right? Strategies within strategies. And, and so those worldviews really are very, very powerful. How would you describe the worldview, the, the dominant worldview? Because, of course, there's lots of worldviews in our society today. The dominant worldview in the advanced economies of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How would you describe yeah. that? And thank you for focusing that on a particular area. It's a really valuable thing to do. So I think the dominant worldview basically is one of separation. Uh, it basically says that humans are separate from each other. It says that actually we're even separate from ourselves. We have a mind and body that are separate from each other. It says that humans are separate from nature. And in fact, that nature itself is really no more than a machine. And as such, it's there for us to exploit to the, um, the, the best possible way. And it also is based on that sense of selfishness arising from this separation, the sense that everything can be reduced to these particular parts. And nature itself is just basically the story of selfish genes evolving that humans themselves are selfish. And just to Uncle Bob's point, that and it's that selfishness that leads to capitalism uh, where people just basically uh, maximize their, for their own benefit that leads to the most efficient society. That's, in a nutshell, is what our dominant worldview is saying. Well, it's funny. It may be the official normative worldview of, say, rich neoliberals. Mm. But in reality, we don't live that way, right? Well, and that's the thing. We... As human beings, we actually don't live that way at all. And yet, we hear this worldview repeated so many times in so many different places that most of us don't even realize that there is another way of looking at things, which I think is one of the fundamental drivers of the sense of alienation. 
that people have and loss of meaning because basically we kind of feel that life is different from that, but we don't know where to turn. We don't know why we feel so dissatisfied with the lives that we lead. That, and we're told that that's the way it has to be. There's no other alternative. Yeah, and yet, you know, to the point, my point that we don't actually live that way, we just had a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner with our extended family, right? That it was all about togetherness and sharing, and we all cooked. Every one of us has a, a one or two dishes that we do, et cetera. It doesn't fit into the neoliberal paradigm at all. And so the way we live our lives day to day, you know, on the ground contradicts this worldview, but unfortunately, this worldview informs how we've created our institutions. Right. That's true. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, to be fair to even to these people who subscribe to this dominant worldview, and they uh, oftentimes they'll say, well, you know, what you're just describing looks on the surface like it's everyone just having an enjoyable time with each other. But really, we're all just selfish. It's just, you know, scratch, this famous statement, scratch an altruist and you'll see a hypocrite bleed, is that, I think how it goes. Because ultimately, even if we look like we're just having fun, we're doing it for our own benefit. And fundamentally, we're driven by the selfishness, even if it pretends like at some superficial level to be this sort of sense of like reciprocal generosity or whatever. But those are the, some of the things that have been shown by so much science to be basically wrong, based on wrong misconceptions. Yeah. And now back to your earlier point, there is certainly a growing sense amongst many people, and many of the people who listen to this podcast are part of that community, that there's something fundamentally wrong with the road that we're on. Yeah. Yes. And that's really one of the things that we see. If you look at nature as nothing other than a resource to exploit. And if you look at other people and nothing other than resources to exploit for your own benefit, then that will naturally lead to these self-reinforcing feedback effects that is driving our global civilization to, I think, uh, at a faster and faster rate towards a precipice. I mean, there's obviously multiple crises, but in my mind, you can probably distill three fundamental ones that are all interrelated, but also separate. And one is, of course, the climate emergency that now people are becoming increasingly aware of. Um, but even that is really like a symptom of this deeper underlying crisis of the ecological devastation that we're causing to the earth right now. And then within human society, of course, is this crisis of increasing inequality that is leading to this massive disconnect between different parts of our human species. Yeah, see, you know, the language I tend to use is that our system has no breaks. I tend to argue that game A, the game we're playing today, started to coalesce around 1700 with the glorious revolution in England, which gave us some of the early semblance of democracy, the founding of the Bank of England in 1694, which gave us the template for modern finance and science, modern science had come into yes. being at that point. And we were just about to enter the industrial revolution and the fossil fuel epoch. And those three things actually brought humanity a long way. Humanity was not necessarily in a very good state in 1700 in terms of quality of life. In some ways, we'd accumulated most of the bad things from civilization, not too many of the good things. But game A started to spin up very rapidly with First, the you know, water-powered industrial revolution in England and to the, some degree the Netherlands and then fossil fuels and what changed everything and boom, up it goes. And for much of the, you know, especially the West, 
standard of living's increased, health increased, science. Medicine finally stopped killing people. Probably around 1890, for the first time in history, medicine was probably saving more people than it was killing. Cities, for the first time in a long time, became net generators of humanity. Before that, they were net killers because things like public health was so bad. So all, all this good stuff, seemingly, keeps going. And in some sense, the impact it had on the earth was relatively limited because there weren't that many of us. Right. You know, it's hard to believe it was only about 600 million humans in 1700. Yeah. Less than a tenth of the number we have today. And that's just a few hundred years ago. It's like hard to believe. In 1700, we didn't even have fossil fuels to any significant degree. So the harm we could do to the world or the impact, I guess a better word, more neutral, was relatively small. But the thing started scaling up and started growing exponentially. And I sometimes describe wisdom in the current world as being able to Think in exponentials and understand the concept of fat tail distributions, right? Yeah. And if you think exponentially about the impact of humanity on the earth, uh, it just has gotten greater and greater. And probably sometime around 1975 or thereabouts, we probably actually passed the sustainable carrying capacity for the earth, at least within our current technological capabilities. You know, in the future, we may be able to do more. But for right now, if we can even continue at the current rate, we'd eventually crash the ecosystem, seems to me. And why is that? Because this game A, which brilliantly took us out of dirt floors and disease and ignorance, had no brakes. There's nothing built into it that says stop. And in fact, the inner engine, I generally point to being money on money return, has escaped its purpose and has a life of its own and is driving all of us to do things that in some sense we know is wrong. Yeah. Beautiful summary um, of, yes, uh, so much that I explore in my two books, both Web of Meaning and The Patterning Instinct. And to your point, I agree with you that really we can look around at that point in Europe around that sort of 17th century time frame as something that shifted in a profound way. And because of my focus on worldviews, I, I tend to look at like, in fact, one of the biggest questions that I explore over the years is what was it in the way of thinking? What was it that led to that shift to happen? And it's so interesting because as you really explained it really well, there's two, it's like a double edge. There's all this amazing material progress that happened from that time. And there's all this destructiveness that happened from that time. And I think it's not surprising to see that it's right around that time that we have the development of things like capitalism, the, the, the first sort of for-profit corporations that are with a limited liability. And we also have things like imperialism and colonialism happening around that time, because a lot of this new way of thinking, which saw nature as a machine, was very much about this concept of exploitation and extraction that everything is there to exploit and extract as much as we can from. So I think that that is what has led us to this, like you say, it's this exponentially increasing process that basically it's a little bit like a sort of AI that's run amok, if you will. I find it interesting sometimes how you know, people raise a very real concern looking at our what we think of conventionally as AI and say, what would happen if you if we created an AI that just optimized for just one thing, like manufacturing paperclips or whatever, and it was so powerful and so smart, it turned the whole of the earth into nothing other than a paperclip manufacturing facility. So basically it was the end of all life just because it was, it was 
doing this one objective so powerfully. But what I think people fail to notice, it's as though we as a society created an AI back in that 17th century, which is basically an extraction optimizer. And it's really, we can go back to that notion of the sort of fundamentals of the capitalist approach to the world and very much related to this notion of, in a way, it's like the limited liability corporation is the AI, is the sort of the actual operating system that's led to this because it's all about increasing shareholder profit as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah, I would push back a little bit on that because I, yes, I'm, I'm also a critic of limited liability corporations, but other business forms, partnerships, et cetera, can have the same effect. In fact, most business still was partnerships in that epoch, including the great colonial expeditions, you know, yes. et cetera. They weren't exactly. limited liability. Some were limited liability companies, but most of them weren't. It's actually the inner loop, money on money return as the value that transcends all others. When you worship money on money return, it really, it matters a bit in terms of limited liability corporations are a little bit more virulent, but it's one level down, I would argue. Yes, I agree with that. Well said, Jim. The other one I'd like to push back on is one of my favorite things to push back on. So don't mind, I'll push back a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean I fundamentally disagree. Right. I don't believe that imperialism and colonialism were an invention of this epoch. You look at human history, Anyone who could be an imperialist and a colonialist was in most cases, right? Right. Certainly the Persians were, the Mughals were in India, the Romans, of course, the Vikings. Exactly. The main difference was we had more capacity, right? We had a stronger material base to power our imperialism and colonialism. And that's the main distinction. Most of the game A empires had at least a phase before they became decadent when they were imperialistic and colonial. And so I, I don't blame that one on us, right? You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. There's absolutely no doubt, of course, that you know, empires really arose from these great agrarian civilizations all around the world. And some of them were even more destructive, given their technology, than even what we saw in the West, such as the whole Mongol empire, for example, through Eurasia and stuff like that. But here's what, what I find so interesting. And actually, I, I kick off my book, The Patterning Instinct, with this story. And it's a story of Admiral Zheng He of China, which is kind of a counterpoint to this, this point you just raised. Because what people don't realize, I mean, everyone, of course, has heard of Columbus, who sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and, um, and that's the beginning of modern history and, and everything like that. And often people times people say the reason the West ends up ruling rather than China is because they were closer to the new world. So they discovered this, this new um, set of resources sooner. But back almost a century before Columbus, actually the beginning of the 15th century, was this Chinese admiral, Zheng He, who had this massive armada. He had about 30,000 people in about something like 300 of these massive boats. You could have fit 10 of Columbus's boats into just one of Zheng He's boats. Their technology, their power was greater than anything history had ever seen. And for decades, he dominated the Indian Ocean. He could go all the way to um, the Middle East. He went to East Africa, uh, Southern India. And in many places, his whole armada was greater in people than even the, the cities he stopped at. And some places worshipped him as a god. He seemed to be so powerful. But when he went to these places, he didn't go like, oh, great, we can enslave the population. We can find where the silver mines are and like do all this stuff. He actually kind of basically, he, he, he'd go to a community. 
He would find out who was in charge. He'd invite them or one of their leading people back on the boat to be emissaries, to go back to China, to kowtow to the emperor. And it was all about setting up trade routes and actually policing the whole Indian Ocean to keep pirates at bay. So there was a very different mindset. Columbus, on the other hand, when he landed in the East Indies, almost in his journal, he wrote to the king and queen of Spain, almost one of the first things he said was, you know, they're so naive and innocent, and they don't even know what metal is like. If we wanted to, with just a few men, we could enslave them all and bring them and just like do whatever we want with them. Very different mindset. And that is this mindset of extraction and exploitation that I do think is actually um, needs to be identified as part of something that's uniquely European that came from that, which we now take as given because it's so globalized, but we don't see that in these earlier ancient empires. They were very much about you know, extending empire for their own sake and then finding a certain self-limiting way of saying, okay, now we've got what we want. Now we can just sort of indulge in, in what we have. Well, it's hard to say because unfortunately we don't have the test of right. one of these empires in, encountering somebody at such a gigantic different societal level, right? If Ho had run into America, wonder what he would have done, right? Because if Columbus had landed where he thought he was going to land, which was in Indonesia or where there's already, you know, advanced civilizations, probably the story would have been very different. He wouldn't have been able to conquer and colonize. Them. Well, except... There, there is a difference that we can see, though, um, interestingly, because it was only a, the next century, well, ju really just a few decades later, that the Portuguese did arrive in the Indian Ocean. And this is what's so interesting, because by the time the Portuguese arrived there, there was this very stable situation where you had these big Chinese fleets and you had these big Arab fleets, and they kind of worked together and there was this trade going on, and things were actually very stable. When the Portuguese arrived there, their technology was still very limited compared to these big fleets. But yet within a couple of decades, there was a, a historian called Abu Lagad who's written a really great book about looking at exactly this, um, this situation. Within just a few decades, the Portuguese had completely changed the rules of engagement. And they had actually devastated some ports, basically by kind of cheating, if you will. They, they, they kind of, they came up with a different set of rules, which people weren't expecting and people didn't really know how to even respond to them. And it was only a few decades before they were actually in control. They had disrupted the whole trading system. They were um, sort of putting taxes on people, not allowing them to go to certain ports. And that was the, the beginning of the, the sort of colonialism. So I would actually I think what these lead to is this recognition that there is a deeper shift in mindset that needs to be understood, which is really leads to this notion that I describe in my, in my books of how culture shapes values and it's those values that shape history. And that's why it's so important to look at different worldviews to understand that what we think is a given is actually just one particular way of looking at things. Very good. Yeah. By the way, if you could send me a link, to, well, give me the title of that book or email it to me. Yeah. The, well, the, the author, her name is Janet Abu Lagad, but I don't remember the title, but I'd be happy to share that. And we can put that in the notes. Yeah, fine. Because I've always been curious how such a tiny, underpowered Portuguese insertion had such a huge effect against, you know, particularly India, which was the leading metalworking society in the world. Right. Exactly. The Portuguese showed up with a couple hundred cannons. Why didn't the Indians just 
blow the shit out of them, right? And yeah, exactly. I'd love to understand that. I don't have a little hole in my understanding of history. Anyway, let's move on. Otherwise, we could talk about this one topic all day. Uh, another term you use a bunch of times, 69 times, as it turns out, <laughs> is spirituality. Oh, now this is a term that I struggle with. I must admit, right? One of the hallmarks of the Jim Rutt show is I've been I've been known many times to say when I hear the word spirituality, I reach for my pistol. Right. And uh, I don't happen to have a pistol with me today. Sometimes <laughs> I've been actually known to pull one out. And the reason I I say that is. I'm not sure what the hell it is people mean when they say spirituality. And so I generally, when people use it a lot, I start off by saying, what do you mean when you say spirituality? Right. Yes. Well, it is and um, it is a loaded term. And it's one that if you look at the web of meaning kind of carefully, you'll see that it doesn't really start to enter into the uh, discourse so much until later on in the book because I wanted to get a few things established first. And the, I, I think the, the first thing I want to get established in the book, and before I even answer the question, I'll sort of be clear about it, is the sense that everything I write is based on rigorous science. And so I am certainly not somebody who goes around trying to put forward some sort of woo-woo uh, conception of the world or tries to um, say, oh, we need to look at spirituality in those kind of scare quotes as something in a, in a separate domain or something like that. In fact, what the book really, one of the fundamental themes of the book is that actually the split that we have in our modern dominant worldview between science and spirituality or materialist reality and spiritual reality are made up distinctions that are based on preconceptions that turn out to be wrong. And the approach to understanding spirituality, in my mind, actually comes from systems thinking. It comes from a deeper analysis of things like complexity science, systems biology, chaos theory even. And basically, we can look at all those different disciplines as being like really sciences that look at the connections between things rather than the things themselves. So the bulk of science is based on basically reductionism. And you know, so many amazing things have been discovered and developed and so much great technology from a reductionist approach that looks at the things themselves, goes to, uh, breaks them down into smaller and smaller parts, sees how they work, how we can manipulate them and how we can build the technology we have today. But the thing is reductionism was so incredibly successful that a lot of scientists over the last few hundred years basically got to conflate their success with a, a sense, a sort of a cosmology of basically uh, believing that reductionism is the only thing that actually can be understood. And, and it's the only thing that can explain the whole universe. Whereas what complexity scientists show is that actually you can understand things looking at the relation between them. And if you do that, it leads to levels of understanding the reductionism alone can't uh, actually get to. What I find so fascinating is that once you start to look at the connections between things as having their own meaning and, and trying to understand them, that leads to a whole set of steps that actually um, leads to a spiritual understanding of the world. We can even understand spirituality itself as really like a focus on the connections between things rather than the things themselves. 
Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that would be the complexity view. My favorite way to describe the complexity view to laymen is the distinction between the dance and the dancer. I like to say reductionism is learning all there is to know about the dancer, right? How long their legs are, how high they can jump, how quickly they can move, how much they weigh, all these kinds of things. But it doesn't tell you anything about the dance, right? And the dance is how they interact with each other to produce a pattern in time and space with multiple dancers, typically. And that is complexity. It's all exactly. Sense, right? Yeah. And, you know, I do under, I understand you know, the need to remind people that too much reductionism is a bad thing. But I think it's also also that sometimes that gets a little overstated because in the modern world, the best scientists are well aware that complexity science is the framework, which is the only one we have for exploring the most important problems in science. I mean, for instance, biology is basically a complexity science, even though much of the actual working biologists are capturing reductionist, uh, collecting buttons, essentially. Uh, they all know that the real science of biology is fundamentally a science of complexity, just because of the combinatoric explosion of possibilities, when you're even describing something as simple as the metabolism in a single cell, is way beyond the ability of reductionist science to ever make any sense out of it as a pattern. And so, you know, we have to bump up a level and think complexity. And you mentioned other ones as well, chaos theory, which was sort of the predecessor to complexity science. But I also like to throw out that kind of the uh, naive Newtonianism that all of us were struck by when we were 14, if we were nerdy little science geeks, which I'll hold my hand up and say <laughs> that I was. You know, I was I was probably a Laplacian. If you, you know, had given me the position and the movements of all particles in the universe, I could have predicted the future for all time, right? That's right. Turns out to be utter bullshit, as we know, for many different reasons. Just the practical reason of deterministic chaos. But also, the other lens that has moved us away from strict reductionism was the development of relativity in the early 20th century. And then a little later in the 20th century, quantum phenomena of all sorts, right? And so I would not say that science today is strictly deterministic by any means. There are people doing reductionist science, but most of the top scientists understand that these other domains are really extraordinarily important. And uh, whether their own work day-to-day -day is involved, whether they're always thinking about how the work they do relates to the, the bigger questions. Yes, I, I think that is Largely true. It still astonishes me, though, how, say, in biology, um, there is a core group of people who are fervent believers in the whole sort of Richard Dawkins selfish gene approach to biology, which has been shown you know, so clearly by different approaches in biology in recent decades to be just much too limited a conception, even a false conception of how evolution works. But I think the, the, what is most important is that while science itself has moved from that determinism for the most part, the dominant worldview has not. And that's really a part of what I'm trying to do in this book, The Web of Meaning, is actually show people who are not scientists themselves, um, but who have taken this dominant worldview as a given, that actually what modern science tells us is very different from that. And then most importantly, then looking at that difference and saying, what are the implications of it? What are the implications for really how we look at meaning in our lives? What are the implications for how we look at the human relationship with the rest of nature? And what are the implications for how we look at our, at our future and how to co-create that future? Yeah, well said. In fact, at our Santa Fe Institute, we feel like we're on the same mission, though, from the scientific side. We're, Absolutely. You know, we're saying basically that 
all the important and difficult problems that we can confront are problems of complexity. And if we if we don't spend adequate resources, which we still don't, to understand the complex nature of reality, we're going to Pandemic's a good example. There wasn't enough complexity thinking brought to it early enough, just as an example. So let's get back to the issue of spirituality and spirituality and science. The degree that we call spirituality, the thinking about the connectedness of things, sure, it's part of science. <laughs> right, exactly. And I guess you know a, a big point in my book is that once we recognize that we can actually come up with sort of quasi-definitions, if you will, of terms like spirit or spirituality from systems science thinking, we get to see that that distinction, that hard distinction that most of us believe there is between science and spirituality is really a false distinction. That it's possible to feel into the deep interconnectedness of all things in the world. And people can have mystical experiences where they get this sense of just oneness and all the separations just kind of blurring and going away. And, you know, for the most part, in our dominant worldview, we're told, oh, well, you know, that's good for you that you had that experience. I'm glad that that must have felt very meaningful to you. But, of course, you know that those things are they're just in your head, right? You, I mean, that's not actually reality out there, which is very different. But what I try to lead people to in the book is this realization that actually when you have those kind of experiences, what you're really doing is intuiting a deep sense of what actually modern science itself is pointing to. So that sense of deep interconnectedness of all things, how everything is fundamentally related, how um, we as individuals don't really have separate selves, which are more like constructions, but actually our identity itself can be the expands to so much bigger. These are all actually scientifically valid intuitions. Well, that's good. I still wish y'all could come up with a better word than spirituality. The reason, I, the reason I don't like it is it embeds the word spirit in it. And, and you know, basically uh, ghosts, Casper, the friendly oh, ghost, right? But, but let's actually m move on to that while we're in on this topic is look at the word spirit itself. because It means I, breath, basically. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed coming up with a, a systems-based definition of the word spirit. Because in the book, I talk a lot about attractors. And even though um, the book goes quite deeply into some of these sort of core concepts of self-organization, but it's, very, it's not so much a nerdy book. I try to really bring these ideas make them really accessible for people like me, basically, who are not. And you did a great job, by the way. You go into deep ideas with relatively simple examples, which is always good. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, what helps is that I myself am not that nerdy scientist. I was, I sort of came into it from not understanding these things at all. So I kind of used examples that made sense to me, that if I could explain it to myself, I could explain it to others. But then if we think of, if we start off by recognizing the importance of what in physics are called strange attractors, these complex, resilient patterns of behavior that um, stay robust, but then sometimes shift into new phase transitions, but um, where the actual relations between things are far more important than the actual stuff themselves, because you can change all of the actual components of it, but it still stays robust sometimes for much, much longer, sometimes even millions of years as you're looking at ecosystems or whatever. But if you look at strange attractors, in the book, I call them natural attractors because I think they're not strange at all because we realize they apply to virtually every pattern in nature. And if you look at these attractors and you look at how they relate to human identity or just the identity of any self-organized 
organism that we call an organism in nature, or even a self-organized system like a river or, or an ecosystem, then we can say that kind of that natural attractor that forms the essential characteristic, the robust Brazilian characteristic of that system, we can call that its spirit. And then it makes sense. It makes sense that we can look at a picture of, say, somebody from hundreds of years ago, and we can look at that face and go, wow, that's, I can feel their spirit. And we can say, oh, how woo-woo, you know, of course that person's dead. Well, absolutely, but the pattern of expression that they lived actually can stay resilient in the patterns of their, the way that their actual face looked that we can pick up and it goes within our own attractors of consciousness and we can actually touch that spirit. Well, we'll take your definition and we'll move on, right? In the book, you talk a lot about Taoism and the Tao, right? In fact, the word Tao, spelled with a T in this case, occurs 122 times. Oh, so wow. <laughs> there's a word you really like. And you tell some a very good and indeed moving story about how you came to discover the Tao Te Ching and where it kind of fit in your life. If you don't mind, would you like to tell us that story? <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yes, well, I, I grew up in, in England and really totally only knowing this one worldview and not even having any sense that there were other ways of making sense of things. But I knew I wanted to do something different. So as soon as I was old enough, at age 21, I left England and came to the United States. Ironically, I was attracted by the images of the time of things like Woodstock or whatever. But this was 1981. I hadn't realized that all that was, was history. And I was like landing in Reagan's America. But anyway, one of the first things I did as a 21-year-old in New York after a few months was actually a friend gave me some powerful psychedelics. And I had this profound experience of walking around New York and seeing the alienation and the, the, just the grimness and sense that, oh, there must be something more meaningful in the world. I went back to this place where I was staying and my roommate said, you know, this book has been really helpful for me at times. And he gave me this book, this beautiful version of the Tao Te Ching, the great classic of Taoism from thousands of years ago. And it had these lovely pictures of natural scenes. And it seemed like the words were kind of glittering, um, almost like sort of jumping out at me. And it had these wise words that at the time, I couldn't explain what they meant, but they gave me the sense there was something so much deeper, so much more meaningful that I could actually be in contact with in the world, like deep wisdom that I hadn't even realized was available. And I, ironically, in my own life, that whole realization got sort of then uh, sort of folded up and <laughs> put in the back drawer for a few decades as I actually went and actually went into business and started a, an internet company and all that kind of stuff. But it stayed within me. And at a certain point in my life, what I'd built had crashed around me. And I went back to try to discover where is that source of meaning? And one of the first places I went to was to try to understand things like Taoism, these ancient what seems so powerful insights, where do they come from? And how do they relate, was my question, to what science tells us? Because I, I didn't want to just accept some form of meaning that rejected my sense of rationality, my sense of understanding the world in a way that made logical sense. And it took me years to try to piece together a, like a more integrated perception of it all. Interesting. And one of the things you discovered, I don't know how to pronounce these things, but I'll, tr I'll go uh, best try. You can... Uh, I think this is quite central to your argument. Woo-wee and you-wee. <laughs> right. 
So how am I supposed to pronounce well, that? Good try, Jim. But um, it's generally pronounced some way, Wu Wei. Wu Wei, okay. So we can think of those people disparaging spirituality as woo-woo, and take that woo, but then woo-way, like as if it's the way. Um, anyway, the word woo-way is a fascinating word. It basically means essentially sort of non-purposive action. And it's something that the Taoists felt that you saw in basically all life around them, whether it was animals or plants or just the way nature worked. It had this way of sort of acting without trying to achieve something, but just doing what it did. And then it contrasted that with what humans did, which they called yu-wei, which means basically purposive action. Um, you know, like I'm a goal-oriented, I'm going to do this or that. And they used examples of like their example of yu-wei was things like, um, say, using a pump to pump water uphill or using fire to dry out a well. And of course, that's what civilization is all about, is doing that kind of yu-wei activities. And the Taoists said, exactly. And they had a sort of theory of civilization, if you will, which was that humans, as they developed this purposive action or yu-wei, they lost the Tao. They kind of lost the connection of that wu-wei way of being, that kind of um, harmonious way of being with the rest of life around them. Now, what's so fascinating, and I know that you just recently had Antonio Damasio on, on your show, who I think is one of the the leading thinkers in understanding sort of cognitive neuroscience and how it works, is the way that he describes the kind of split version of human consciousness, which I, I use the terms in my book like conceptual consciousness and animate consciousness. I think he refers to it as primary and secondary consciousness. I'm, I'm not quite... That was uh, Edelman. Yeah, there, there was Edelman who's a primary and secondary. I think Demacio has, has, has a similar distinction, but it uses slightly different terms. But I like to use the word conceptual and animate consciousness because I think it, it sort of captures the same notion, that the conceptual consciousness we humans have is prefrontal cortex mediated. It allows us to think symbolically, to become aware of ourself, uh, to be self-aware, and to have goal orientation. And that primary consciousness or animate consciousness is very much akin to what the Taoists looked at when they looked at Wu Wei. And I, I really, a lot of what my book is about is to go, you know, we don't have to take that Taoist position and reject civilization and reject this UA thinking, conceptual consciousness as being bad. But instead, we can recognize that it did lead us to be separate from the rest of nature. But we can also use that same conceptual consciousness to allow us to develop what I call an integrated consciousness, one that recognizes and embraces our animate consciousness within us, our animate intelligence, our deep connection with all of life and all of nature, but actually use our conceptual ability to integrate the two into a whole rather than see them as necessarily separate. Yeah, very well said. In fact, that's our whole Game B movement is to do just that, right? Is how do we get the balance? We can't go back. We have to go forward. Exactly. But we do need to recover the ability to live in our bodies and in true conviviality with each other, in right relationship with nature and, and with a light footprint on nature, yeah. as opposed to jumping up and down on nature's neck like we're doing today. And, you know, it sounds like these Tao folks had at least a sense of it. Of course, uh, one of the problems, and I'd love to hear your thinking about this, I know you talk about it a little bit, one of the, the key things we identify in our Game B work 
is the so-called multipolar trap, also known as the race to the bottom dynamic, which is if one actor does X that gives it an advantage in the short term, even if it's destructive of the ecosystem, say, or bad for human nutrition, let's give a simple example, three soft drink companies competing with each other, all using natural sugar. One of them switches to high fructose corn syrup because it's half the price. Well, it turns out it's worse for you, probably, but it's half the price, so it's more profitable. Most consumers can't tell the difference. One person does it, they're all forced to do it, or the other guy will gain market share on them. So I might argue that U-Way is that yeah, U-Way is an attractor for the multipolar trap that players that play U-Way will, at least in the short term, beat the players that play more Wu-Way in their social operating system. And how do we get out of that jam? Well, I think you asked one of the most important questions there is to ask right now. And I do believe that the answer goes back to that original conversation we were having at the beginning today, looking at where this modern worldview actually began. Because this process that you described Again, we think, because all we see around us is the result of um, the dominant worldview now and sort of neoliberal ideology spread around the world, we think that that is just a, pro- a problem of reality um, and there's a problem of, of human nature and then we have to deal with that. But actually, I think it may be more accurate to recognize that it's a problem of the dominant worldview that is based on this sense of separation and based on a sense of exploitation and extraction. And we see in different cultures in history that we don't see that same kind of dynamic happening. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of traditional China, for example. And even though I do hasten to add that I'm not trying to put up traditional Chinese culture as a paragon that we need to go back to. It was an imperialist. It was terribly patriarchal, had all kinds of problems with it. So let's just be clear about that. But it shows that there are different ways of making sense of things. And there's this fabulous quotation. I just, it's so wonderful from a Jesuit missionary who was out there, and I think it was the 17th century in, in, in China. And he discovered where he was living that the mountains in the hinterland um, had tons and tons of silver. And so he took his Western mindset and he, and he was trying to persuade the, the emperor and the people there to, why, why don't you mine all this, um, all this silver, like at a faster and faster rate, look how much wealthier you can get. And he wrote back a letter, or he, I think he wrote in his journal, basically saying something like this, saying, what, they, what they've told me is that they don't want to encourage too much mining of this silver because if they did so, um, the people would lose their focus on their, their families and doing their work properly. And there would be all kinds of sort of instability put in, in the system and it would be bad for everybody. And so the, the silver should only be mined at a certain rate in order to keep things harmonious and stable. And he was going, these people are crazy um, because he's coming from that Western mindset. It was the same time that the Spanish and Portuguese were discovering like potassium. Um, this silver mountain in Bolivia, which basically over centuries, it was the greatest silver uh, cache anywhere in the whole world. And they basically mined every last piece of dust of silver from that, from that mountain over centuries 
enslaving and, and basically ultimately leading to the untimely deaths of maybe 8 million indigenous people over those generations from mercury poisoning. But this, is, again, it shows that it's not necessary to view the world in this extractive way that you just described with the three suffering producing companies. But within the global capitalist system, the system itself drives us to that behavior, whether we like it or not. Yeah, and then often unanticipated bad consequences. Even the Spaniards ended up destroying their imperial power through inflation, as it turned out, right? right. All that silver didn't add any wealth. One of the key distinctions that people get so confused about, money is not wealth. Silver doesn't have farms or factories or learnings or professions. Silver is a, a signaling modality. You can have all the silver you want, and it doesn't change the actual wealth of your society. All it does is inflate your prices, right? And so it turned out that it was, it was bad for the Spaniards, too, in addition to being disastrous for the indigenous people of Bolivia. So yeah, getting caught in these multipolar traps does come with this. You put money on money return as the metric of all value, and it's really difficult to get out. And establishing social operating systems that have the wisdom of the example that you gave, which is to say, hey, we need a certain amount of, of silver in circulation as a medium of exchange and a store of value to operate our economy. But it's the economy that matters, not the nominal money. And th that's a kind of wisdom which we don't have in the West today. Yeah, you know, I really like where, um, how you take that example of this silver inflation and how that ruined the Spanish economy. And really, we can look at our current version of that is GDP, the fact that uh, politician success and country success are measured by our increase in GDP when all that basically measures is the rate at which we are consuming the resources of the earth or turning human activities into the monetized economy and essentially increasing your money over money returns that you're describing. That's all that's measuring regardless of whether it actually leads to human well-being or a sustainable way of humans relating with the earth. That isn't even included in the the measure of success. Yeah, and to show that you know, the ridiculousness of GDP is a measure of anything meaningful. There are a few things better for the GDP than a good cancer case, right? Exactly. And ah, yeah, let's grow GDP. Oh, let's give everybody cancer. That'll grow GDP, right? It's what the fuck, right? It's a nutto variable, right? Which is also, you know, one reason why we need to look at the disconnect between, say, the breakdown, for, like climate breakdown and GDP, because people might go, well, you know, as all these climate disasters happen, that's going to really, that'll show up in the stock market or whatever. But there's this way in which these two disconnect. You have a massive hurricane, and then a year later, you find that the GDP actually goes up because people have got to rebuild. And, they, and so, so many of the destructive things that happen in the world can increase GDP, even while civilization itself is unraveling. Yeah, when really we should be measuring something like human well-being. Absolutely. The Bhutanese have started some interesting work on that. Mm -hmm. I haven't really looked into it deeply, but I know they are trying to get a human well-being measure as a better replacement than GDP. So let's move on a little bit to something. We could talk again about this all day, too, <laughs> which is you do talk a little bit about the you maybe go back a little bit more into it, the neuroscience, and you give the famous example of Phineas Gage, and right. prefrontal cortices, and Gazaniga, and the split brain, and all that. Why don't you tell that part of your story? Yeah, well, that's also so fascinating because it comes back to that sort of trail we were looking at before about the Taoist notion of that Yu-Wei and Wu-Wei thinking. And that recognition by people like Damasio and Edelman of this kind of split 
consciousness that humans have. And we see that split very much in that left and right brain ways in which our our brains actually work, where the left brain is, as Gazanaga describes it, like the left brain interpreter, where we sort of try to make sense of things. And the right brain is really just um, more that sort of way of looking that Wu Wei way of being, like sensing a oneness. And it's something that Jill Balty Taylor did such a great job of describing with her book, My Stroke of Insight, where you actually had a very uh, well-respected neuroscientist actually having a stroke where um, only her right brain was left operating for a while. So from a neuroscientist perspective, she could describe this kind of subjective experience of what it was like when your left brain interpreter just got turned off. So even as she uh, was looking at the fact that she might be dead within a few hours, she was having this incredible, almost like mystical sense of oneness and opening from that happening. And I actually have a chapter in my book where I talk about this as really like the relationship between the I and the self, and which is another incredibly profound understanding that actually the cognitive linguist George Lakoff first wrote about a few decades back in a book called um, Metaphors We Live By. Lakoff and Johnson, yeah, famous book. Yeah, exactly. Lakoff and Johnson, really excellent book I'd recommend. But we realize even in our normal language, we all acknowledge this split between I and myself. Like I can say to you like, oh, I was, I was working this job and I was really, I was tearing myself apart. I'm really, I'm really upset with myself that I was doing this. In fact, you know, I was hating myself that I did this, but then I, I, I feel so much better. I feel at one with myself now because I left that job. And you know what I'm talking about, even though it's as if I've got this kind of split, there's this two different parts within me, because we all have that. We all have an I, which is really like an emergent attractor, if you will, coming from our left hemisphere conceptual consciousness that identifies us as something a little more fixed um, that relates to this kind of embodied moment-to-moment consciousness of the self. Yeah, one of the other things I'd add to it, I'm not, I don't know if it was in your book or not, I don't frankly recall, is that this I-self is a biographical self, right? Yes. And it may be, a, this, this is one we don't yet know for sure, whether animals have the same kind of episodic memories that we do such that they can have a, a biography. Right. We know they have memories and that memories of specific events, including episodes, impact their future behavior. But whether they can stitch those together into a biography is not at all clear. And, and when I was reading about your eye, I said, ah, that's the string of episodic memories that we call our biography to a substantial degree. Yeah. And I agree. Of course, there's no way we can know for sure. But I think we, I mean, of course, it relates somewhat to the mirror test, which is this um, test of whether a mammal is able to recognize itself in a mirror and kind of see itself as a separate self, which some more sort of of the advanced primates and elephants and some, uh, I think cetaceans have been seen to pass the mirror test. And given by what we see in like elephant behavior, and cetacean behavior and the sophistication of what seems to be something very akin to language, I think it's probably a reasonable presumption that there is some kind of biographical self that some of those very high-functioning mammals have. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so anyway, back to your story about, about the I and the self and and you know how getting that straight could actually help us do better. Yes, and, and it leads to this recognition that I call it the most important relationship in your life. It's not the relationship with your spouse or your parents or your children. It's actually the relationship that you have with yourself. 
And it's one that, you know, even if, if you're not getting along, you can't just agree to divorce. Um, you're kind of stuck with it as long as, as that organism is alive. It's you. And so it's one that you really want to get right. And it helps for starters to recognize there is an I in the self and they have different drivers because the I is often driven by our cultural inputs. So if I'm, if I'm a devout Christian, I want to live a very righteous life so that I, my soul, will end up being an eternity in heaven. And, and, I'll, and I'll do things to sort of stop myself from doing things I might otherwise want to do. Or, you know, if I'm a young girl living in this culture, I might want to be seen as attractive. So I'll starve myself just so I look thin enough so that my friends will find me popular or whatever. So the I and the self can have kind of uh, tough relationships at times. And one of the things that's possible is this notion of a democracy of consciousness that I think it was Christoph Coates, uh, if I'm not mistaken, who was one of the people who came up with this notion of what they call transient coalitions of neurons that actually lead from moment to moment, shift within our, our whole cognitive network. Edelman too. Edelman was actually bigger on that. Yeah, exactly right. I think it, His neural Darwinism model. Exactly. You got it. Thank you. And if we recognize this notion of these transient dominant coalitions of neurons as being the way our consciousness works, we can begin to see that this relationship with the eye and the self can actually become more harmonious if we think of our consciousness as what I call a democracy of consciousness. Once we realize that, that we can think of ourselves in this more like democracy kind of way, we realize that we can move away from a tyranny. So it's not like the I is saying to the self, you do what the hell I say and just, you know, just, you know, because that actually leads to a rebellion. Oftentimes we'll end up doing things in our lives that seem to be uh, where we kind of sabotage ourselves, if you will, because there's parts within us that don't want to do what we kind of force ourselves to do. But in a true democracy of consciousness, we can bring in a tonal quality of kindness, curiosity within all the different parts of ourselves and lead to a place that actually can feel like our own consciousness is a, a place that we want to be in, a place of harmony and generosity within ourselves. And we could also, and you mentioned it earlier, and you gave an example, we can also tune these attractors in our neural networks, right? I think one of the things we, we now know is that there are big brain-wide networks that represent some of our bigger mental states. Two of the most well-known are the default mode network, which is right. when you're more or less daydreaming, but also when you're depressed, interestingly. Your brain is organized in the default mode network. And then there's the task mode network. Yeah, I give an example of that is you're changing the tire on a new bicycle which you've never taken apart before. You have to pay tremendous attention. If I take this part off, what happens? Oh, how do I put it back together, right? So your, your brain is totally in to the task, but it's not a well-learned task. It's a, a task that you're learning as you're doing it. That's so-called task mode network. But there are also other modes which are available and they require some effort. And I'm convinced that this is where contemplative practices, meditation, psychedelics, breath work, etc., are actually very useful in that they can move the whole brain network to other attractors. Now, they're relatively hard to maintain for people until they've been doing it for a long time. But these other attractors are actually probably more, some of them at least, are more accessible to these other states, like you know, being more in Damasio's world of feelings, for instance, rather than more in the, in the world of symbols that so many of, the, of, of us ended up, up being. So I think there's another way of thinking about neural 
complexity and detractor states at the whole brain level, and that we can actually do some things about this, and that doing these things may actually be part of what we have to do to get to this new world. Because unless we, if we live only in the default mode network and the task mode network, then we're particularly susceptible to game A ways of thinking, multipolar traps, et cetera. Uh, Ian McGilchrist gives a slightly different spin on that. You know, he basically argues that we've allowed the left brain to overtake and suppress the right brain. I think he's probably, my view, overstates it a little bit, but there are brain states which lead one to be more uh, susceptible to multipolar trap game A dynamics. And some of these other states that you can get to through contemplative practices, psychedelics, conviviality, singing together, singing and dancing actually changes your brain state. I believe we're actually part and parcel of getting ourselves to value things that we wouldn't value if we stayed in the more mundane brain states. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And that's really what I describe a lot in the book as this notion of integrative consciousness, where, again, if we take Ian McGilchrist's point of view of left brain versus right brain, I think there's a lot of validity in this recognition that I mean, if we think of it more in terms of not even left and right brain, but this conceptual consciousness versus our animate consciousness. I like that much better, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because it includes this notion of the prefrontal cortex mediated symbolic thinking. And there is a sense in which that has been taking over our society. Even if we look at something like IQ measurement, which basically it doesn't actually measure intelligence, all the different aspects of intelligence, it measures a certain aspect of intelligence, that conceptual intelligence. And we see how over the last century, the normal IQ average around the world has been increasing steadily. That doesn't mean that humans have gotten smarter. It means that we've shifted our focus of our attractors towards that conceptual intelligence at the expense of other ways of being in the world. And I do think that what is so hopeful arising from that is Another great finding of neuroscience is like Hebbian learning, this recognition that in simple terms, neurons that fire together, wire together. That basically the way that self-organized learning works in our um, neuronal consciousness as well as all through nature is that exactly the definition that when successful behaviors work for an organism, those neural connections get tighter and you'll be more likely to go back to that place again. And that's where things like meditation or other embodied practices. Like for me personally, for example, in addition to meditation, I do a lot of qigong, which is this traditional Chinese practice of using movement to really be more connected with those neuronal connections within your own body. But as you spend a lot of time in those practices, not surprisingly, you get better and better at actually strengthening those neuronal connections so that when you're not doing the practices itself, it becomes just more part of your daily life. In just the same way, if somebody works out in the gym every day, we're not surprised if six months later they've got rippling muscles. We go, right, they, they spent the time doing that. The same thing is true of things like meditation or other embodied practices. Yeah, very good. Well, let's move back now to talking about some of the false ideas or dubious ideas about evolution and how there are better ways to think about it. Yes. Well, that is one of those sort of Uncle Bob viewpoints that we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation. If you ask most people uh, today about how does evolution work, at least the ones who you know feel that they're part of the scientific worldview and are sort of with it in their minds, they'll say, oh, right, well, it's all about the selfish gene. You know, um, the genes um, were actually driven by the gene, um, and we're just kind of machines that the gene 
and uses to optimize for itself. And the gene is basically selfish. And genes that uh, discover ways or just have some mutations, so they lead to certain more adaptive behavior, they're the ones that outcompete other organisms in their species. And that's how evolution works. And that's what it's all about. And that seems like a very believable theory. It's one that seems scientifically valid until we actually look at what biology has now told us in the last few decades. Yeah, one, one of the things I would say is that it's also a matter of level of abstraction, because at one level, the selfish gene view is probably correct, right? But what it, what it fails to get at is that these selfish genes are coupled in this vastly complex co-evolutionary context. Right. And that's where the story is, I would say, not wrong, but grossly incomplete. Right. Well, it's also that to some degree, it's even wrong because ultimately the selfish gene concept is based on the sort of unidirectionality of gene expression. I mean, the, the sort of standard approach is that, well, the gene drives the organism and gene expression leads the organism to do what it does. And a lot of modern biology looks exactly at this kind of complex feedback loops where in fact the organism itself or the cell that has a gene within it actually is in this ongoing feedback with a gene and determines itself which elements of the gene should be expressed. Yeah, gene expression is highly complex and it's part of this co-evolutionary context, right? Exactly. Which is that the, the genes and the cells will react to what's around their surfaces and they'll express, you know, their metabolisms will actually change, et cetera. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of epigenetics, which is that you can actually have some changes to your genetic material that happen after reproduction. And so the story is much more complex. Right. And and, and so it's basically, I'd say it's a, it's a qualitative error to actually look at the gene as the sort of building block of evolution, because it's not, it's, it's one of a complex set of patterns, just your point. But then even more of a mistake is this notion of outcompeting. Because you could look at this first thing we just said, and you can say, okay, so if it's not the gene, it's the organism, but it's still about competition, and one organism outcompetes the other, and that's what drives evolution. But what is so fascinating is that now that um, as people look at evolutionary biology and look at the way in which evolution worked from when life first emerged on Earth billions of years ago, there's only been really four or five major stages in the increased complexity of life on Earth. Um, from basically prokaryote cells to eukaryote cells, and then to multicellular organisms, and then to mammals. And there's just been a few steps. Every one of those steps actually took place as a result of different organisms, different species, learning how to work together in mutually beneficial symbiosis rather than how to outcompete each other. So even though, of course, nature can be characterized by both competition and cooperation, and one not necessarily dominant over the other, the major steps in evolution that's led to the abundance and richness of life on Earth today have all been steps in increase in cooperation between different species. Yeah, you know, and then even a little bit more subtly, probably the biggest step of all was to large-scale multicellularity, right? Right. Where the cells, which not too long before had been independent, competing in some cases, you know, practically all cases, competing organisms, they somehow decided to form a cooperative coalition. Exactly. It's amazing. And it actually took about a billion years for that event to take place, which gives you a sense of how complex the shifts needed to be for evolution to actually make that, make that move. Because essentially, 
in a multicellular organism, of course, many of the, the cells have to give up their ability to reproduce in order to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's the very thing that if we can learn as humans right now, that we can be part of something bigger than ourselves and our identity can expand beyond our separate identity, that gives us the ability potentially to evolve culturally to a more advanced place. That's a very nice metaphor. And, you know, even though it took, actually took more like two and a half billion years, three billion years to get to our kind of multicellularity. Right. But once it occurred, the so-called Cambrian explosion just went nuts, right? And essentially all the phyla of, a, of multicellular life that exists on Earth today came into being in maybe 10 million years, which is a ridiculously short time on the evolutionary clock. In fact, we had an episode here on the Jim Rutt Show where we had Doug Irwin on, who's one of the leading scholars of the Cambrian explosion. So anyone who's interested in following up on that, I would recommend they look up the Doug Irwin episode. Yeah, absolutely. The ratcheting up of capacity has been competition at one level and cooperation at another. And it's very, very interesting. Right. So now we don't have a lot of time left. Let's make sure we leave enough time for where do we go from here? How do we take your ideas as you lay them out in the books? And how do we get to be flourishing integrated organisms and cultivating integrated values and all those kinds of things? Yeah, well, you know, of course, the answer can be looked at from our own individual development or just our own basically sociocultural uh, development as a human species. And I think that's the one that maybe is the most pressing of all, because as we've talked about earlier, we really seem to be in this ever-increasing ratchet towards what sober-minded, serious scientists are really beginning to call out uh, the potential threat to civilization itself this century. If we keep relating to ourselves and the rest of life in this way. So I think we are facing a real dire existential emergency. And I think that to my mind, what we need to look at is not just try to do um, little fixes incrementally, but look at this underlying operating system that's driven us to this place. It, it's, a, it's a little bit like if we have an operating system that's faulty, imagine a whole bank of software engineers working on trying to fix the bugs that come from the system, and they and they do a workaround here, and that that leads to like three more problems that they have to come across the new workarounds, and then suddenly somebody comes along and says, you know, we need to change the operating system itself, and they say, oh, we don't have time for that, we have, we we, we got to fix the, do these fixes, it's so urgent, but until you actually look at changing the operating system itself, you're going to keep moving faster and faster towards this problem. So in our case, the operating system itself is the worldview and the values arising from that. And very much to what you've been describing is that this kind of way of looking at money making more money and this continual exploitation of everything at a faster and faster rate. And what I end the book at actually is this possibility of actually shift what it would look like if we did shift our cultural, our civilization's operating system. And we went from one that was really all about wealth accumulation to one that was truly life-affirming, one that was actually built on the foundational principle of setting up a civilization that was there to set the conditions for humans to flourish on a regenerated earth. And that might seem so far from our current civilization right now, but what is so amazing to look at is this realization that actually it's possible. And not only is it possible, but it's the only way, in my view, that we will really turn the direction of where we're headed away from the, from the precipice. It's been called 
by many people, and I've, I've sort of taken the name myself when I write about it, an ecological civilization. This recognition of changing the very foundation of the basis of our civilization. Yeah, that's what we have to do. But we have some really difficult things to re-engineer. One of the ones that I'd like to call out, and it's part of our worldview, is that we've allowed ourselves, I mean, uh, humans have always competed for status, even in hunter-gatherer societies, the person that could dance better or hunt better, do bees better. But fortunately, there was many dimensions in which everybody pretty much had something they were good at. When you reduce it all to status through possessions bought with money, we're caught in a trap, right? Or, you know, the, the near surrogates thereof of, you know, the beautiful flat abdomen to put on your Instagram if you're, you know, a 13-year-old girl playing the beauty game. Right. And, and so we're trapped in these status hierarchies. Any ideas on what can we do as both individuals and the societies to escape this primary trap that we seem to be in? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing as individuals we can do is recognize that it is this trap. And it's been called aptly uh, by some social psychologists, the hedonic treadmill. And it's a hedonic treadmill that the, uh, the corporations that are really the manifestations of this exploitative mindset have done such a great job in manipulating. Essentially, each of those things you described, the desire for status, the desire to be uh, feeling attractive, the desire for our community to feel good about us, these are all very natural, healthy human instincts that we did evolve as nomadic hunter-gatherers. But they've been manipulated in our society to cause us to feel a sense of being bad about ourselves in order that we essentially turn into consumer zombies, just doing the stuff to pay the money to make the corporations wealthier. Once we understand that, it enables us to step off the hedonic treadmill and actually look more towards that integrated consciousness, move towards what Aristotle called eudaimonia rather than hedonia. Eudaimonia being like a sense of true well-being that arises when we're actually pursuing our true drive and fulfilling our true purpose as an organism rather than just doing the moment to moment hedonic stuff that we are and that makes the corporations wealthier. So I think that's one of the things we can do um, in terms of individually stepping off that treadmill. But I think just as important is to recognize that we are part of this greater system that is unraveling and to recognize something that I call fractal flourishing that basically when we want true flourishing for ourselves, we realize that we're actually part of a fractally connected system where our individual flourishing is part of a societal flourishing, which is part of the flourishing of overall humanity and the living earth itself. And that by recognizing that, we can turn our attention to actually trying to uh, take part of some of the systemic changes needed to move our entire society away from this hedonic treadmill. And I think there are some great ideas out there that we, you know, that people can really get behind and help to move towards that ecological civilization. What are some of those ideas? <laughs> well, one of them, for example, is recognizing the, the elephant in the room, this, um, that these massive transnational corporations now dominate essentially our entire life. This kind of out-of-controlled AI, we don't even want to talk about it for the most part because People will go, oh, we don't want to get caught in that. You know, these people are against capitalism. Communism failed. Like That's an old 20th century notion. No, we need to recognize that this is the problem. But there are ways to actually fix that 
that are not yet not politically on the table at the moment, but could be quite easily, which is to simply to say that these transnational corporations should only be allowed to operate with renewable charters with a triple bottom line, as they're called, which is basically uh, a bottom line to not just try to maximize shareholder profits, but also to um, optimize for the planet and for people, the three Ps, if you will, profit, planet, and people. And you see these now in these smaller things like B corporations or benefit corporations, which are voluntary. And corporations can choose to actually change their charters so they have this triple bottom line. And people right now can say, oh, it's meaningless. That's made almost no impact on what's on the actual system itself. That's because it's voluntary. But if, if corporations were required to have this triple bottom line, and if they could only renew their charters every five years, if a, a panel of people who were actually affected by these corporations actually agreed that they met their triple bottom line, it would fundamentally shift the behavior, the DNA of the corporation all the way through. That's one of these ideas. That it's a relatively simple fix. It doesn't take great technology, but it would fundamentally alter the direction of where we're headed. Yeah, we also have to realize that we are confronting new, never before confronted issues. You know, a perfect example is how our social media platforms are essentially very deeply tracking every behavior that we take and then using computers stronger than the ones that beat Kasparov in chess and are then presenting us materials to manipulate us, to turn us into optimal economic buying units. And as you know, Tristan Harris has been right. on the show and he's a friend of mine. And he and I've talked a lot about these issues. And it seems to be re requires a completely new frame of reference to think about just saying no to technologies like this, right? That's right. And the current paradigm does not allow that, right? As a goddamn communist, right? Well, the last thing I am is a goddamn communist, but I still think that the idea of turning a computer smarter than the one that beat Casper off at chess against a 13-year-old kid, taking every motion and thing that they do and turn them into an optimized economic buying unit is just goddamn wrong. And as a society, we should need to put our foot down and say no. I, yeah, I think that is absolutely right. And uh, Tristan Harris, of course, has come up with some wonderful ideas for how we can look at that. And I do think that we have to look at it not just in terms of our individual choices, but again, systemically. And my own view is we need to recognize the technologists themselves are not inherently bad. We have to look at the context in which they're developed. And when they're developed within the context of this kind of global capitalist model, and within this exploitative extractive model, even the best looking technologies will get sucked into exploitation in this way that we're talking about. The internet itself is a great example. Uh, yeah, I know you and I were both in those early days of the internet, right? And it seemed like so promising, this distributed availability of information and connection all around the world. And of course, we see now how it got sucked into these massive uh, corporations taking over the power of what was possible. But if we, this is why I keep coming back to this thing, we have to change the underlying operating system itself. We have to change the rules of how our ec economics works in order to redirect. So that, for example, imagine if Facebook were actually given over to the, the, the commons. Like imagine if the, if the development of this incredible, amazing, powerful, 
global connectivity of billions of people around the world were not optimized to make money out of people's behavior, but optimized to actually help communities connect with each other and so for people to get a sense of our growing kind of global human consciousness, really, a planetary consciousness. The possibilities are tremendous if we change the system in which they develop. Well, Jeremy, I think that that's the bottom line. I think we're going to end it right there. This has been an incredibly interesting conversation. I'd strongly recommend people who found this conversation interesting go out and get Jeremy's book, The Web of Meaning. And I would also say that the earlier book, The Patterning Instinct, was every bit as interesting. So I'd like to thank you, Jeremy, for being a guest on The Jim Rutt Show and engaging in a really deep and good conversation. Thank you so much, Jim. I enjoyed it tremendously. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.